Well, good morning. My name is Brad Bantall, if we haven't met before. Uh, if you subscribe to the church newsletter through eparkway.com, or if you were in church last week and you read the handout, then you already know a little bit about what's been going on in my family this uh, summer. In June, my wife, Pei Ling, had a, a life-threatening diabetic uh, reaction. And as a result of that, I decided to take a, a break from the elder board for a season so that I can focus on the health of my family. But I'll tell you a little bit more uh, about what happened to Pei Ling as part of my message. But go ahead and turn in your Bibles to back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 again. And that's where we're going to be, be in this morning. Our theme for the end of the summer messages has been to talk about a passage of Scripture that God used to change our lives. And one of the more memorable messages for me was listening to Tony Tiemann talk about their, their precious daughter, Leilani, who has Down syndrome. And Tony looked in Scripture, and he recognized his family's life in the lyrics of one of David's psalms, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But I remember Tony also talked about he was raised by a, a single dad, uh, his dad was an old-school cop here in Fairfield, and Tony kind of implied that maybe some of that old-school cop uh, carried over into his parenting style. And so it's hard to imagine now, if you don't, Tony's our youth pastor, but he's so gentle. But when he was in junior high, he, he acted out by basically destroying public property. And Another very moving message to me was listening to John Barry talk about his incredibly painful childhood and how angry that made him and, and even violent that it made him sometimes. But John looked in Scripture and, and he saw his life in the prayer of Jesus. I praise you, Father, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, but you've revealed them to little children. Now, for, for John and Tony, growing up in a broken home is an important part of their story as to how they came to know God. But in my case, I grew up in a stable Christian home. But even the kids of Christian parents need to be reconciled to God. If I were to summarize my own message, it would be talking about the times that I turned away from God whether I turned away from him physically or whether I turned away from him emotionally. But then recognizing my life in the words of the Apostle Paul, be reconciled to God. Now, I've been told, and it's true, I admit, I've been told that I'm a linear and logical thinker. And that makes sense because I'm a computer science major, math minor, so I, I fit the stereotype pretty much of the computer nerd. Um, but my journey with God has been anything but linear and logical. Do you feel like your relationship with God has always been this straight line and everything always makes perfect logical sense? I don't. And so my approach this morning is to read a passage of Scripture 
not so much that God used to change my life, but more it's, it's a passage that summarizes this nonlinear, non-logical journey that I'm on with God. And so I'm going to read it, and I'm going to stop frequently almost after every verse and kind of reflect on events in my life. And so I'm not really teaching the passage so much as reflecting on the passage through events in my life, but I I think I'm reflecting in a way that that reflects the truth of this passage. So sometimes there's going to be flashbacks, and sometimes there's going to be flash-forwards. So for a linear thinker, it's going to be as random as I can get. (laughs) So let's go ahead and start reading 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 14, which is the middle of the paragraph. So there, it's random. But I can't, I'm too linear, I can't stand to start in the middle of a paragraph without explaining and setting the scene first. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this letter to a church that he founded in the city of Corinth, Greece. And there are some men that came into the church and they tried to undermine his leadership through, among other things, by accusing uh, him to the congregation of being two-faced. And Paul basically defends himself by saying, well, that's that's ironic that these guys would call me two-faced because all they're concerned about is saving face. And I'm not so concerned about the face that I think you present, that I think I present to you, I'm concerned about what's in my heart. And in verse 14 is what Paul is sharing, what's in his heart. And I hope that you'll recognize your life in this passage as well. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. About three blocks south of the University of South Dakota is a little church that stays open 24 hours a day so that students can study there. Ed Vischer was the pastor and the sole staff of this little church. And Ed was like a fun study break to me. He was real personable and outgoing. He was always cheerful. And he just kind of would walk through the church and stop and talk to whoever was studying. And so he was just a fun study break. And it was okay to call him Ed or call him Pastor Ed. Now, he was the first pastor I met that it was okay to call by his first name because in the church that I grew up in, all of the ministers were called Reverend so-and-so. And all of the reverends taught me lots of good information about God. But Ed didn't just teach me about Jesus. Ed was like Jesus to me. And Ed's the one who convinced me that Jesus died for all. And that meant that if Jesus died for all, then Jesus died for me Personally, prior to that time, I was convinced that God was too busy being God to care about me personally because something had happened three years earlier that made me turn away from God. 
verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Some Christians can remember the, the day and the time when they gave their life to the Lord. In my case, I can remember the day and the time when I made a conscious decision to turn away from God. I grew up in a, a little one-stoplight town in Iowa, and it's one of these stoplights, this, the old style where it's based on a timer instead of sensing when someone's there. So you're, you're, all, you're always the only car at this stoplight waiting for no one. But I think they have it just so they can be known as a one-stoplight town in Iowa. I, my address was literally on Main Street. Mom still lives on Main Street. And as you might expect, because I was this tall already, even in high school, my passion was playing basketball. And high school basketball is a huge sport in Iowa, mostly because it's too cold to do anything else in the wintertime there. But I remember one time uh, playing in a homecoming game in front of a crowd of 2,500 people, which is about 500 more than the size of the town that I grew up in. Uh, and my team, my teammates, we looked like the cast of that 70s show. You know, we, I had just... In the day, you combed your hair just straight all the way around. It looked like someone just cut your face out. <laughs> and uh, we had the old-style basketball uniforms, you know, the short shorts, the tank tops, the tube socks up to your knees. But I wasn't a starter, uh, but I usually got to play uh, at least a quarter every game. A lot of times I got to play about half the game. But it didn't matter to me. I didn't want to be a star. I just loved playing basketball with my teammates. So that was junior varsity, my freshman and sophomore years. Then came varsity tryouts. And the varsity coach was a strict disciplinarian, but not in the stern coach, you kind of respect him for it kind of way. He was just mean. In fact, behind his back, we called him Mean Gene. And Mean Gene just despised me. It's kind of a long story, but back in the day, I, I kind of, um, I just called things as I saw them, even if it was a teacher or an administrator or whatever. So I kind of spoke out about stuff, hypocrisy in school assemblies and, and stuff like that. One high school teacher told me once that I should have been born 10 years earlier so I could have been a hippie and stuck it to the man. <laughs> but anyway, Mean Gene, he just didn't like me. But... What he would do on the night of the final cut is he would have you go one-on-one -on -one against the teammate that you were trying to beat out. And he'd have the rest of the team stand in a, in a semicircle and watch. And I'm sure this was mostly symbolic. Certainly after watching us play two to three hours a day for two or three months, he already knew who he was going to cut. So I don't know if it was to see how you did under pressure or if it was other, some other kind of symbolic thing. But anyway... In my junior year, he had me go one-on-one -on -one against a senior who, for some reason, had never tried out before, which is really unusual for someone to try out for a team the first time as a senior. So, one, I was just way taller than him, and he wasn't that experienced. So it was easy 
to outplay him. And I didn't feel good about that. He was a nice kid and everything, but it was easy to outplay him. But Mean Gene cut me and put that senior on the team, but never used him in a single game all season. But, you know, actually that really didn't discourage me that much. Uh, I just was determined to practice twice as hard that whole year and, and make the team as a senior. So even if it meant shoveling snow off the driveway and, and shooting buckets in zero-degree temperatures, I just loved to play basketball. And I came back, and on the night of the final cut of my senior year, Mean Gene had me go one-on-one against kind of a scrawny junior. And, again, I was able to fairly easily outplay him. And then we would go to the locker room and wait for the coach to post the cut outside the locker room door. And I saw my best friend Corwin go out to check and come back in. And as he came back in, I said, hey, corn dog, because it was high school, so you had to have a... And this was not dog, like D-A-W-G, because that hadn't been invented yet. This was... I said, hey, corn dog, did I make the team? He just shook his head slightly, and he walked by without looking at me. I thought, that can't be possible. And corn dog's last name starts with an H, and mine starts with a V. Maybe he just didn't read the whole list carefully enough. So I went outside, and, and I read the names, first and last names, slowly from top to bottom. Back in the day before computers, it was typewritten in alphabetical order. And then I read it back slowly to the top. And I read it back again. I went and sat down and finished changing. And me and Gene came into the locker room in front of my friends. He asked me if I wanted to be the water boy. Now, he said team manager, but his posture, the way he did it in front of my friends, was was obvious what he was doing. As I walked out to my car in the parking lot, winter came kind of early and harsh that year in Iowa, and I felt this icy wind hit me. And I remember distinctly when, as I shivered, that I became cold towards God. And I decided at that moment that I'm going to live for myself. And I did. I started that very same night with a a new set of friends. Now, I'm not going to share all the stuff that I did because, for one thing, it kind of bothers me when Christians sometimes they share their past life and they almost seem like they're a little bit proud of of, uh, what they did and all of that. I'm not proud of what I did. And besides, everybody knows what the party hard life is, is all about anyway. But I basically wasted the next 10 years of my life. That is until I met Mike. You look at verse 15 again, and the NIV maybe is not the best translation of the last part of that verse. You see where it says but we, that we should no longer live for our, ourselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Actually, it would be, it's really better that if the two of those go together. Sometimes when people, when Christians think about Jesus, their thoughts kind of stop with his death, but his death and his resurrection go together. And so verse 15 should really be read like this, along with verse 16. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again, 
for them. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Well, after I graduated from the University of South Dakota, I moved to San Diego and I got a job, uh, no lie, with E.F. Hutton. If you're you're too young to get that reference, don't worry about it, but the the older people will kind of get the inside joke on E.F. Hutton. Anyway, after... I lived in San Diego for about three years. God led me to a mega church of about 5,000 people. And the church was so big that I can't even say that I ever talked with the senior pastor other than just saying hi to him in passing. But Mike McIntosh's life is the closest thing that I, the closest person that I know to a modern day apostle Paul. The story of how he was converted, how God rescued him from drug abuse to the extent of mental illness, how God restored his marriage, and just how ever since he was saved, Mike was so thankful that he just lived his life all out for God. And it showed in his preaching and it showed in the way that he lived. And listening to Mike teach, watching the way he lived his life, I became personally convinced that Jesus not only died for me a long time ago, but that Jesus is now alive and he's present and he's active, not just in the world in general, but he's active and present in me personally. Pastor Ed and Pastor Mike are the two people that I honor the most for this early part of my journey of coming to God because they're the two people that most changed my point of view of Jesus. Every leap forward in my faith always, without exception, follows a clearer point of view of Jesus. For people that don't grow up going to church, they usually think about Jesus as a good teacher. And if you happen to have grown up in church, then somewhere along the line, on some level, you probably knew that Jesus died for sins. But it was Pastor Ed that taught me that Jesus died for my sins. And it was Pastor Mike that showed me that Jesus is alive and active. He's present in my life now. So from the days of high school basketball to Pastor Ed in college to Pastor Mike in San Diego is about 10 years of my life, roughly from age 17 to 27. So why do I look back and say that I, that I wasted those years? Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Let me tell you a little bit about the nonlinear path that my life took during those 10 years. I grew up in a church denomination that essentially teaches the same doctrines that we do here in Parkway. Some people like to call them the doctrines of grace, which is ironic because there was very little grace in my hometown church. And I should 
this would be a good time to let you know that Mean Jean was a Christian. And my story took place in a Christian high school. And I didn't figure it out, obviously, as a 17-year-old, but later on I was able to look back on that time. And I realized that the reason I blamed God and the reason I reacted so kind of over the top to just being cut from a basketball team is because I needed someone to care that I got cut. And none of God's people cared. And therefore, I assumed he didn't care either. There's a lot of reasons for it, but my Christian parents didn't pick up on it. My Christian teachers in the Christian high school didn't. My Christian boss at the restaurant didn't. My youth group didn't. And for sure, Reverend so-and-so didn't. But when I met Ed, I was willing to believe that God cared for me because Ed cared for me. And it was during that time that I asked Jesus into my heart. It's when I was converted. It was when I was regenerated. It's when whatever Christian lingo you want to put on it, that was when I became a new creation. And that's when the Holy Spirit came into me. And at first, there was a real change in my life. I stopped partying. I started hanging out uh, with the kids that went to the, the campus ministry. Um, I, you know, I took it on the chin when my dorm buddies would tell me I was you know, becoming a weirdo and turning into a religious freak. But eventually, I started to slide back into my old way of life. And so I kind of scaled it back, maybe from hardcore party or to party goer. But off and on, more or less, for the next five years, I spent Sunday mornings usually sitting in a church pew and Friday nights usually sitting on a bar stool. And you might wonder, well, how's that possible? If the old has gone and the new has come. Well, my answer isn't very satisfying to a linear and logical mind, but just as creation is a mystery, the new creation is, is also a mystery. When we're born again, God creates a new spirit in us but it still coexists with our, our mortal and our carnal flesh. And Jesus warned his three closest disciples. He told them, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And looking back on it, I can see where my flesh was weak. Even for a born-again Christian, Loneliness is a powerful enemy. And loneliness is not so much a lack of companions, but this, it's this deep sense of a lack of companionship. And another name for companionship is, is fellowship. Fellowship is this deep sense that you belong to the group. 
and this deep sense that the group cares for you and you care for the group, and this deep sense that you have a like-mindedness with the group. And for me, I had to leave my legalistic childhood denomination in order to find true fellowship. And that's when God led me to Pastor Mike's church. Now, it didn't hurt any that that's about the same time I met my wife, Pelaine. But it wasn't so much, I don't think, that God said, I realize you're lonely. Here's your wife. It was more that I had reached the point where I no longer would put anything or anyone else ahead of my relationship with the Lord. It was almost as as if he said, now that I know you won't put anyone else before me, not even a wife, now I can entrust you with Pelaine. Because the path of her life had led her to the exact same place and decision before she met me. And I think that's, that's more than a coincidence. So we'll have been married uh, for 20 years on the 19th of this month, and I've never turned away from God since then. I've never slid back into my old way of life since then. But that doesn't mean that I've, that I've never felt emotionally distant from God. And what I've learned is that whenever I feel distant from God, it usually comes from the fact that I'm dwelling on what I think he should be doing for me or what I think he should have done for me rather than dwelling on what he has done for me. And that's what verses 18 and following talk about. All this, meaning this new creation that Jesus has died for all, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, you guys probably know this too, but because I work in the computer industry, I kind of remember the whole progression of Microsoft Windows. So this fall, just in time for Christmas shopping, Windows 7 will be coming out. Right now it's Windows Vista. Before that it was Windows XP. Then it was Windows 2000, Windows 98, Windows 95. Then it was Windows 3.1 or 2, I think is when it all started. So... Each version, with the exception of Vista, which is a piece of junk, then has been an improvement upon the previous version. But underneath, it's still a lot of similarity. So right now, I'm Brad version 2009. Back when I was trying to make the basketball team, I was Brad 78. So there's been a lot of changes in my life in those 30 years. But underneath, there's a lot of similarity, too. Because looking back on it, I realized that whether I was playing basketball with my friends or whether I was partying with my friends, I really just wanted to belong. 
And I will never leave my wife because we belong to each other, no matter what happens. It's my children, my two oldest are already out of the house. I got one more year till my youngest will be, uh, he moves out to college. But my kids always need to have the assurance that they'll always have a family that they belong to. And words can't really express how thankful I am that I belong to God and his family. In hindsight, I'm glad that I didn't make the basketball team because now it gives me something to compare and to learn a spiritual lesson. Every hard thing that's happened in my life has always taught me something in the spiritual realm. Because now I know what it feels like not to find your name on the list. I know what it feels like to be cut because you weren't good enough. I know what it feels like to be cut from the list just because someone has the power and the authority to do that to you. I'm so grateful that my name is written in the book of life. My name is included. And I, I'm not good enough. That's not why my name is on the list. It's just because God is gracious and loving and forgiving. So all this is from God, not counting our sins against us, the new creation, Jesus dying for all, that he is the one that has reconciled us to himself. All this is from God through Jesus Christ. So if you read the handout last week or you got the newsletter from the church, then you already know a little bit about what happened to my wife, Peleng. But I want to take you there in person. When I called 911, her breathing was just very labored. She was gasping for air. She wasn't able to walk without being helped. And as the ambulance and the fire department arrived, it was almost as as if she had sensed that help had arrived because she just fell limp as they arrived. And the two firemen carried her downstairs, and I could feel myself getting emotional, and I reminded myself to breathe, and I kind of regained my composure, and I just felt God's complete peace come upon me. And I just switched into mission mode at that point. It was my mission to help my wife. And I couldn't do that if I was breaking down. I waited for the ambulance to pull out and for the fire truck. And it took them forever to get turned around in our cul-de-sac and pulled out. I didn't feel it was like right to pull out in front of the fire truck. So I'm out on the freeway and I look in my side mirror because I took a different route to the hospital than the ambulance did. And I look in my side mirror and I see the ambulances behind me. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> I, gotta, I wasn't speeding, but... Ambulances don't actually drive as fast as you might think they do. By God's grace, there was a parking spot right by the ER door, so I was able to park and go right in with my wife as they were taking her out of the ambulance and into the ER. And I just kept my hand you know, on her, uh, on her cheek and on her hand, um, even though she was essentially unconscious, just so she knew um, she could sense that I was there and that it was going to be 
okay. One of the other symptoms in the state that she was in is that she was extremely dehydrated. And so you could tell she was using all of her strength, all of her oxygen to just whisper out water. And even not knowing what's going on and not having a medical background, knowing her, I could tell she was fighting to stay alive. The nurse would try to measure her blood sugar level, and I, every time they would try to measure it, the nurse would whisper to another nurse, it just says hi. And it happened like a couple of three times, and I, so finally I, I kind of sensed that's not normal. So I asked, what does that mean? And they said, well, it means that it's, her blood sugar level is too high for our meter to read. So the only way is to take a, a blood sample to the lab. They came in to do that, but because her body was cold, they had a hard time finding a vein. And so each time it happened a couple of times, the nurse would say, I need to get a more experienced nurse. And in the midst of this crisis, it was a little bit kind of uh, comic relief because each time it would be like a 10-year-old nurser, a, ten, a nurse that was 10 years older than the previous one coming in. This happened a couple of times. I'm almost like, okay, I'm going to start carding the nurses at the door. No. No one under 45 gets in anymore. But finally, a nurse that you could tell had seen a million veins in her life, found it, and we waited for what seemed like a long time for the lab results to come back. Now, if you're in the medical profession, don't come up afterwards and like tell me I was wrong because I know there's all different perspectives and stuff. But in general... A normal person's blood sugar is like 80 to 140 and sometimes goes up to 160, 180 after you eat. But generally, it's under 200. And if you're in the 200s or 300s, that's when you really need to start doing something about it. But if it's over 500 to 1,000, that's dangerous. And that's when you can go into a coma. When the lab results came back, her blood sugar was almost at 900. And the ER doctor was working on her, and while he was looking down, he said, this is very serious. People die from this. And then I think he probably sensed that maybe that wasn't very reassuring. (laughs) So he looked up, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, but she isn't going to die. You got her here in time. We're going to reverse it. I just nodded slightly to him, but inside my heart I was saying, I will give you everything I have to reverse it. God has given everything he has to reverse sin and death. In the greatest reversal that there ever has been or ever will be, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus was substituted for the death that we should have died for sins. And we received the righteousness from him that we didn't earn. It's the greatest reversal that's ever happened. This plea to be reconciled with God is not only for unbelievers. Paul wrote this letter to to, uh, 
Christians. And I've learned that just because you're once married, always married, doesn't mean that you never have to reconcile with your spouse after an argument. And just because you're once saved, always saved, doesn't mean that you never have to reconcile with God when you're distant from him. It's as if God is saying to us, sin is serious. People die from this. But you don't need to die. You don't even need to be distant from me. You got here in time. But be reconciled to me. Be reconciled to me. Pray together. Father, each one of us has probably experienced something in our life that was irreversible, whether it was a marriage relationship that ended in divorce and the relationship just couldn't be reversed, whether we've lost someone dear to us and their death is so final from the perspective of this side and it just seems, because it is, irreversible. But Lord, that's why we're so thankful that sin and death are reversible. That we are able to be forgiven and to have eternal life. And this is eternal life, to know the Father and the Son. Father, you know our hearts and you know and we know ourselves if we're distant from you or not. I pray, Father, that today your spirit would work in each one of us as we come to the Lord's Supper. That, Lord, if we are distant from you, that you would reconcile us to yourself. That we would humble ourselves. And, Father, if there's anyone here who has never been reconciled to you, I pray that now would be their day. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen as it's more kind of dialogical with the Lord. It's, he's speaking me to the Scriptures, and I'm praying back to Him, and it's, it's relational. It, it, wor- it works for, for me. And you come to a place in your meditations when you're, you read something like in Psalm 16, where it says, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods, and that happened to be a time in my meditation where I'm like, Lord, are, are there other gods in my life? Are there other things that are more important to you? Sin? A relationship I'm, I'm willing to get rid of? Or, or deal with, or I'm holding too tightly. And then if you're praying that, and this is prayer and confession, if you're praying that, inevitably, and you're doing it in faith, the Lord's going to show you stuff. He's going to say, yep, there it is. And here's what it is. Then you find yourself confessing to him, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I pray for your forgiveness. But I also pray that you would give me this, again, back to the affections. Give me a hatred for my sin. I don't want to just acknowledge that it's wrong with my mind. I want you to build into me this sense of disgust for my sin in my heart. So you're confessing and you're praying. That, my friends, is, is, uh, are, are four of the things you can include ingredients to, to an effective, again, by the grace of God, time of daily worship. Now, you could go on and include good worship music, um, a walk under a blanket of stars, or on a path through lodgepole, pines and 
ponderosa pines and Jeffrey pines, or the use of devotional material, which is I keep a devotional book alongside my Bible and I try and read a section of it every morning. It helps. Others teaching me what God has said. And it, it helps. We could go on. But those four things, if you're willing to, in faith, practice worship each day, um, preparing yourself and meditating upon the Word of God and, and, um, and taking the time and then praying and confessing. The Lord is going to meet you. And it will change your day. It will change your week. It will change your month. Um, it's not going to make you perfect. It's not going to be perfect in this lifetime, but you'll see growth in your heart and in your mind and in your life. It makes a difference, I can just tell you, for me. Um, it gives me strength to answer the day. I mean, mo- a, lot, a lot of times people operate from emptiness and not from fullness. You hear people say, I'm out of gas. I, I have no motivation. And you're always operating from a sense of emptiness. But when you meet with the Lord and He stirs your affections in the morning, then you're operating from a sense of fullness. Then ministry, for me, and ministry is really all of life, isn't an obligation. It's more of a passion because you're operating out of fullness. That when you're worshiping and you're meditating on Scripture, you actually have something to share with people. Someone comes to you and they're downhearted and you're able to say, you know what? God showed me and He taught me and it helped me. He says, find hope, my soul, in God alone. I have meditated upon this. It's helped me. You're able to give something to somebody else. You're able to come to Saturday night or Sunday morning worship and because you've been worshiping all week, it's simply a release and expression with your brothers and sisters of something you've been doing all week. I find that I'm more sensitive to the leading and the prompting of God's Spirit in my life. Because the moss is gone. The dust is gone. And then you sense that He's right there working through you. And that is such a joy. That comes with that private daily worship. Another thing it does that's really helpful is it puts your problems in perspective. When you know, not just with your mind, but with your heart, that God loves you because He scraped off the moss, well, then your problems aren't as big as they used to be. And it's okay because I have the Lord, so if... I lose my job. I have Him. I'm not going to say it doesn't hurt. That would be wrong. But I have Him. It reminds me of the first time that I heard the words, I love you from the love of my life. Remember that? Ever been in love or had a wife and and you as a man or a woman, um, you hoped she loved you, you suspected she loved you, but you haven't heard the revelation that she loved you. And there's that moment when those three words come out of her mouth, I love you. And there's this kind of wave of euphoria that, that sweeps over your heart. And at that moment, the whole world could, could fall apart. And you really wouldn't care. Because you know, she loves me. You know? It's like someone could say, hey, you know, you better get indoors, it's raining. I don't care because she loves me. Your car's on fire, Dan. Call the fire department. I don't care. She loves me. The economy is going down. She loves me. And to know each morning and have your heart refreshed mentally and also affectionately the greatness of God's grace and His mercy, His faithfulness and His love in a very real and powerful way allows you to enter into your day. Oh, found out I have, I have leukemia. 
God, He loves me. Doesn't take away the pain, but knowing the love of God with heart and mind because you have worshipped each day makes a radical difference in how you live. So church, simply commending to you something that's in the Scripture, something that others have taught me, I just have a little taste of. And I hope you make it a regular part of your life that you will, like David, be able to rise in the morning and sing and praise to God who is our strength and our fortress. It will change your life. It will change our church. It's like plugging into the fountain of life each morning and having new energy, new life to worship and to live. Lord, we want to taste you. We want to know you. We want to use the faculty of our mind as best as possible to scour the scriptures, to look at the stars, savor the trees and creation, to know your greatness, the greatness of your faithfulness, power, and love. But we also, Lord God, want by your Spirit to have those affections of love and joy awakened each morning. So I pray that you would impress upon each person here the need to meet with you, the desperate need to meet with you, but also the delight and the desire of of meeting with you and that it would become a time that it wouldn't feel as an obligation or a checklist, but something they long for each day to meet with the living God and to know his greatness, your greatness, Lord. So please, just give us a taste. Help us to rejoice in you, find our strength in you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, I pray. Amen.